we continue with our series on the book of uh, Genesis. And if last week was, you know, a, a topic or a theme that most people try to skip because it's full of names, it's genealogy, what we have in our text today uh, is what some people would rather not talk about. This is a, a difficult text to study. This is a difficult text to interpret. But uh, because we are called to, to hear and receive the full counsel of the Lord, uh, we are going to study this together. Um, you know, it's, it's very easy to have um, you know, sound bites to answer difficult questions uh, in the scripture. But because we believe in the authority of the scripture, because we believe that the Bible is inspired by God, and we also believe that the Bible is clear and understandable, uh, we can approach this with confidence because even children can understand uh, the Bible. Do you, do, you, do, you believe it, uh, do you believe that? Do you agree that the Bible is clear and understandable that even children can receive it well, right? But this does not mean that we understand all parts of the Bible equally, right? Some are quite direct and easy to understand, and there are some that does not give easy answers. In fact, it often creates a tension, which, believe it or not, that tension is actually a good thing. When we are confronted of the things that we see in the scripture, it's a good thing. Because as we approach to learn the scripture, it must confront our underdeveloped and incorrect understanding of our faith in terms of who we are and who is the God that we worship. So today, I hope you find comfort that as Christians, we don't have the full answers in equal um, capacity. We also wrestle with issues brought forth by the scripture. The difference uh, for a Christian is that it does not lead us to despair or deconstruction of our faith. But it drives the believer deeper into faith in the Lord. We may not completely know all things, but we know the one who knows all things. And that should comfort us when we approach uh, difficult passages like, uh, like this one. But thankfully, by God's grace, he does not leave us with, uh, he, he does not leave us without some helpful ways to understand the scripture, even the difficult ones, even in our limited capacity to understand. So my question is today, can we really rely on difficult passages to help our sanctification when it raises more questions than answers? I believe so. I believe so. And I hope you also uh, find comfort in that because that's what we are confronted in our passage today with all its difficulties and tensions our wrong view of our own nature and God's nature is confronted. And what is that wrong view? You know, often, if we are honest, 
we overestimate our goodness and we misunderstand God's judgment. That's often subconsciously or sometimes we are fully aware that we overestimate our goodness or we misunderstand God's judgment. And hopefully the sermon will clarify that because, you know, we have, we need to have a deep understanding of our human depravity and a clear understanding of God's judgment. When we have that, we will have a better appreciation of God's grace. All right? And this is what this message is all about, to have a better appreciation of God's grace when we look at the radical corruption of man and the radical solution from God. And that's the sermon title today, Radical Corruption, Radical Solution. And this is essentially what our text teaches us today as we uh, as read to us the, our passage. What we see is that with the spread of wickedness in the world, we must see that God's righteous judgment is not only what the world deserves, but it is also what the world needs. Okay? And contrary to common misunderstanding, God's righteous judgment is not a display of his cruelty, but actually a display of his covenant love for his creation. Okay, let me repeat that big idea because, you know, if you want, your mind wanders away because we are totally depraved, even when we are gathering for worship. I hope you will have a handle of uh, this text. Let me repeat that. What this text teaches us is that with, with the spread of wickedness in the world, <clears throat> we must see that God's righteous judgment is not only what the world deserves, but it is also what the world needs. And contrary to common misunderstanding, God's righteous judgment is not a display of his cruelty, but actually a display of his covenant love for his creation. So let's break that. Uh, let's break that big idea down into two things, and and that's the the outline of our text today. We will talk about number one, the source of the problem, and that is total human depravity. And number two, we are going to look at the solution to the problem, which is total divine judgment. All right, the source and the solution to the problem. Opposite of that is total human depravity and total divine judgment. And hopefully, you know, through this message by the power of the Spirit, we get to have an honest, healthy view of our sinful nature, of our sinful state, and also find comfort in our view of God who judges everyone righteously. Let's get right down into it. Let's talk about the source of the problem. Total human depravity. Let me read again our, our text. When man, meaning humankind, began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were very attractive and they took as their wives any they choose. Let me skip uh, verse 3 at the moment. 
uh, go ahead with verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. What's going on here? What's going on? How many of you have watched the, the Hollywood depiction of Noah? <laughs> All right. Very creative view of what's going on uh, in pre-flood days. There were giant stones, right? Noah looks like Maximus. <laughs> very, very creative. And you know what? To be honest, to be honest, our text does not explain so much that people wander away with how they view what's going on here. Right? What's going on? Well, as expected, let me just explain this first and deal with the difficult uh, you know, issues here. You know, as expected, civilization was advancing through the line of Cain. We saw that in Genesis 3. And it was also advancing through the line of Seth. We saw that in Genesis 4, Genesis 5. They were multiplying and they were filling the earth. So when it says there were daughters of, uh, there were daughters who were born to them, it just simply means there were offspring that could bear more children. That's what it simply means. Sadly, as the civilization is advancing, wickedness is advancing with it. Wickedness is advancing with it. So things get worse, things get worse when sons of God enter the story. Who are these sons of God? Who are these sons of God? Let me say first that biblical scholars, theologians, pastors, translators throughout history have had difficult time to interpret this. There's really no universal uh, consensus on, on what these sons of God mean. And there are different ways that people uh, try to uh, make sense of this. Uh, you know, many people look at the term here, the sons of God, to mean uh, the line of Seth, right? That's the Augustinian view. The line of Seth are the sons of God, and the daughters of men are the line of Cain, okay? Some would even say that the sons of God are the rulers or the, the kings, the powerful men at that time, and the daughters of men are the, the ordinary people. So there's a disparity of their power and their capacity. There's a new, there's a connected with line of Seth, there's a new interpretation to this that sons of God simply means sons of God. And the New Testament interprets sons of God meaning believers. So this is, you know, the sons of God are believers, the daughters of men are unbelievers. 
But the oldest interpretation, the oldest, which I'm inclined to believe, refers to fallen angels. It refers to fallen angels. In other words, demons. Demons. And the basis for this interpretation, which you know, many church fathers throughout history have traditionally understood this text to mean, number one, angelic beings are often referred to as sons of God. Right? When you read the book of Job, it talks about sons of God uh, with, with Satan. Okay? Number two, sons of God is a term used for creatures that were created directly by God. Okay? They were creatures directly created by God. So in, in the genealogy that we see in Luke, Adam was the only one called son of God. Why? Because he was directly created by God. The rest of the offspring of Adam were called sons of Adam. So yung term na sons, sons of God is usually associated with creation or creature that was created directly by God. And we could, um, we could say that angels were created directly by God. All right? Third uh, basis this is possible to interpret sons of God as demons because angels can take human form. Not only take human form, but inhabit human flesh. I won't spend too much time explaining the merits of each possibility, whether it really means line of Seth, or kings and rulers, or believers, unbelievers, or uh, demons, uh, you know, we can explore that as we, uh, you know, wrestle with this text together in small groups or in fellowships. But I wish to explore more the relevance of this text to us, assuming sons of God means fallen angels, sons of God meaning demons. Because for me, if I interpret this text based on that, it clarifies the text a little more. It clarifies the text a little more. It's difficult to receive, but it, for me, it clarifies the text a little further because fallen angels entering the story fits their modus operandi. It fits their strategy. This is not only an act of, of rebellion, but a strategic act against the promised seed. This is the uh, offensive attack of Satan and his uh, demons to, to mess with the proto-evangelion. The first gospel of the promised seed that will crush the head of the serpent. The strategy is to mess with human population, to intermarry with them, to have sexual relations with them, hoping that through this, it will destroy the possibility of a promised seed, a victorious offspring to ever be born. They are messing with the, the God's creation. 
Well, this unnatural union, as we see in the text, has produced perversions. And our text seems to suggest that this intermarriage produced mighty men. It produced mighty men. Mighty but wicked men. Among them are the Nephilim. What are... <laughs> ano naman yung Nephilim dito? What's going on here? Well, we are introduced again with the Nephilim in the fourth book of the Torah, in, in Numbers, uh, when uh, spies were asked to, uh, to enter Canaan, and they discovered that there were inhabitants of Canaan, and the spies said, you know, there were Nephilim res uh, residing in the land. We felt like grasshoppers to them. So there's a interpretation that the Nephilim were giants. They are mighty, strong people who can overpower anyone. And that's a, the big possibility, right? And so what we see here, whether you believe the Augustinian view or the like the natural view of kings and rulers, there's an, an unnatural union between sons of God and daughters of men. And it produced perversions. And like I said, you know, my, I'm inclined to believe that this is uh, the demon's way to attack the, the promised seed. And so you might ask, Pastor, if demons are the ones making a mess of things, they should be the one accountable to God, right? If this is their fault, they should be the one accountable, not mankind. Right? Right. That's true. The fallen angels and Satan will answer for their rebellion. Remember, the serpent was cursed by God for being the instigator of the fall. But keep in mind, and I mentioned this uh, a few Sundays ago when we talked about the fall in Genesis uh, 3, the devil could not force Adam to sin without his consent. So whatever perversion that happened here in our text, it happened because mankind desired it to be so. Yes, it was instigated. Uh, it, the story was muddled by fallen angels, but mankind wanted it. Mankind was part of the perversion. There was consent to sin. Yes, the serpent tempted Eve, but it was Eve who took the fruit. It was Adam who did not obey the command of his creator. And so they were equally accountable. They wanted this. And so because of this, God intervenes with this in verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. What does that mean? Does that mean it limits their age to 120 years? 
Yes, probably. Does this mean the flood will happen in 120 years? Yes, probably. Either way, what we see here is God preventing the further spread of wickedness. God is intervening in such a way that he will not allow people to spread their seed and wickedness along with it. And this is, in some sense, a warning. This is a warning that says, repent because you don't have 900 years to turn from your sin. Repent because your life is short. Whether the flood is coming in 120 years, whether your, the age limit will be 120 years, repent because your time is short. And then we go to verse 5, which is central to our point here. The Lord saw, look at, your, look at this uh, passage in our Bibles. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Look at that description. It's great in the earth. It's every intention. It's only evil. How often? Continually. Continually. Friends, brothers, and sisters, this is the source of the problem. And this is the what we call the doctrine of total depravity. Doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity means there is no part of us that is left untouched by sin. We are sinful with our actions. We are, with our, we are sinful with our thoughts. We are sinful with our hearts. With our sinful, we are sinful with our habits. All of our human faculties and functions are marred by sin. No part of our human life is isolated from the effect of sin. You know, many of you know that I'm a, you know, I follow NBA basketball and you may not be familiar with this basketball player, so I will not mention his name, but there's this recent, really talented, uh, very promising uh, basketball player that was recently suspended from the NBA because he did such a stupid thing. He did an unwise thing that, that could almost ban him for the rest of his career. And so he gave, after a, you know, after a few days of suspension, he, he made a, a public apology. He said, I take full responsibility of my action. It's not who I am. It's not who I am. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? Often when we sin, we say, I don't know why I did that. I'm not usually like that. I don't know what got into me. I'm usually a good person. 
something came over me. I'm not usually that bad. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? If we don't know why we did that, if we don't know what got into us, the Bible has an answer. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, there might be an objection to this uh, doctrine of total depravity to say, of course, pastor, I understand that nobody is perfect, but isn't it too harsh to say that everyone is totally depraved? I mean, would you say that William is totally depraved? That cute little boy? <laughs> what has he done? Sorry, William, to put you on the spot. <laughs> so there's this misconception of what, what R.C. Sproul uh, calls uh, total depravity with utter depravity. Uh, total depravity talks about the scope, what is covered in our depravity, not really the, the, the level. We are not... Uh, all like Hitler. That's not what total depravity means. But all of our human senses and everything, heart, mind, body, habits, are affected by sin. You might say, sure, they, that may be true. Total depravity may be true to some people who are purely evil. But aren't we essentially good people with some occasional bad behavior? Aren't we essentially nice people who make mistakes from time to time? Pastor, I'm not like that politician who's corrupt. That may be true to him, but not for me. I'm going to church. Why would you call me totally depraved when I go to church? I give to the church. Why would you call me totally depraved? Well, that depends on how you measure the standard of goodness. And to answer that, I'll let Lolo R.C. Sproul answer this for us. Let me quote him. Obviously, some people are far more wicked than others. Next to Saddam, uh, Saddam Hussein or Adolf Hitler, the ordinary run-of-the-mill sinner looks like a saint. But if we lift our gaze to the ultimate standard of goodness, the holy character of God, we realize that what happens to be a basic goodness on earthly level is corrupt to the core. And here's why, friends, this is important to understand. If we are not convinced that sin totally covers all our humanity, if we believe that we are inherently good people that miss the mark from time to time, then your solution to the problem will be completely different. 
If man is inherently good, then the solution could simply be behavior adjustment. If man is essentially good, you just need to have your good acts outweigh and outnumber your bad actions. You just need to go to church more than you miss the church. You just need to give more to, to people than you give to yourself. You just maximize your langit points. In that case, you don't need a savior. You just try harder. If man is not totally depraved, your salvation is in your hands. And that scares me. Because I cannot guarantee that I will be able to maximize my langit points. On the other hand, here's what the Bible teaches. There is no one righteous, Romans 3 says, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All, whether you're young and old, whether you're man or woman, all have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Friends, that's total depravity. And you know what that means? As we look into the flood narrative, which is a really difficult uh, thing to chew on, when we look at everyone is equally deserving of the judgment, we look at this text and see that no human being is a mere collateral damage because of the depravity of the few. Let me say that again in Tagalog. Walang nadamay lang. In God's judgment, walang nadamay lang sa kasalanan ng ibang tao. No one will say, Lord, sila lang naman talaga yung may kasalanan, damay lang ako. I'm just merely a collateral damage of the sin of evil people. Each one will be both a victim and perpetrator of their own wickedness. And friends, we need to recognize the seriousness and the scope of the problem so we can understand the magnitude of God's righteous judgment. And this is where we go to uh, point number two. The solution to the problem is total divine judgment. Let me read quickly verse 6 and verse 7. The Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created on the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. You know, again, this is one of those passages that raises so many questions. Why would God suddenly just wipe out everything? Is he quitting on the, the world that he has made? Is he a project manager 
who saw like, you know, everything is falling apart. I'd rather destroy everything. Pastor, I thought God does not change. Why does it seem like he is trying to fix a mistake that he, ha he has made? Is the God of the Bible cruel? Does the God of the Old Te Testament does not care? You know, some have been confronted by this passage, e even professing Christians, and concluded that the God of the Bible is power-hungry, a disengaged deity who makes mistakes, and he does not deserve our worship. And some have walked away from supposedly the faith that they have professed. Let me encourage you that properly understanding this passage not only answers those misconceptions, but also gives us a a more beautiful view of God's nature. Let me share with you three things how this actually tells us of a beautiful God. Number one, it shows to us, it shows to us a God who cares for and is deeply involved with his creation. Again, let me read, the Lord regretted that he has made man and earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And verse says, 7 says, I'm sorry that I have made them. And that's an interesting language used here because it seems like God is repenting. In other translations, it uses the word repented. And it seems like God made a mistake. It seems like God is sorry for something that he has made. What is going on here? I thought God is omniscient, omnipotent. Well, to understand this, we need to understand a big word. Are you ready for this? Some of you know this already. Anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. Anthropo, meaning man, morph to form or to change. So this simply means this text ascribes human categories to help us understand in ways that we, in our limited knowledge, who God is. When the Bible says, the Lord stretches out his hands, that's anthropomorphism. When the, when the Bible says, God is inclined to his ears, that's putting some human categories, human forms, to help us understand what God is like. But that's not necessarily a literal thing. All right? That's figurative language to help us understand the God that we worship. It's anthropomorphism. So was God surprised at the turn of, of events? No. Because he knows all things. Yet despite knowing all things, he shows how much it grieves him to see his creation fall away. It's like a father grieving at the rebellious nature of his son. 
if God does not care, if God is disengaged with this creation, this verse should not exist. He would just skip to making judgment. But God shows his heart, so to speak, to us, to tell us how much he is grieved from the wickedness of the world. Listen, friends, before we are even enraged how the environment is being abused by what we call, you know, polluters of the world, before you get heartbroken at the news of a terminal disease, cancer, diabetes, asthma, before you say, this is such a cruel world, before you even start complaining about how corrupt or incompetent the government is, the Lord is already grieved in ways you will not even begin to fathom. Because God cares and is deeply involved with his creation. Number two, what this tells us, it shows a God who will righteously set things right. Let me read again, verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and keeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. Let me say something very important to help us understand God's judgment. This world, this world prior to the flood, is already in self-destruct mode. Even without the flood, even without verse 7, the world will already destroy itself. Because of the increasing wickedness, it's about to implode by its own hands. How many of you are familiar with uh, the movie franchise called The Purge? The Purge? You are good people. You don't watch things like that. <laughs> I haven't watched that, but I am familiar with it. The, the premise is that, you know, once a year, all crimes are legal. You can do anything you want. It's the society's way of cleansing, right? You know, if God just allows wickedness to destroy the world, it will be destruction without mercy. It will be just like the purge. It does not really set things right. It may sound like and may look like a good solution, but it is a solution in the hands of wicked men. It is a solution that serves those who are wicked and powerful, and it abuses the powerless. If God is just cruel, he will just allow the world to destroy itself. So it's rebellious and selfish kind of judgment without mercy. And so for God to ordain, to destroy, 
what he created himself is a judgment with mercy. Because he is the only one who can actually set things right. And his righteous judgment is setting things right that brings his grace. And this is the third thing that we see here. This judgment shows a God who freely offers his grace in his judgment. Freely offers his grace in his judgment. Look at the last verse in our text. Noah, however, or another translation, it starts with, but Noah, so there's a, a shift in the story. Noah, however, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Found grace, in other translation. It, that simply means grace in the eyes of the Lord. You know, friends, God does not owe Noah to spare him from judgment. God is not beholden to Noah to save him and his family. If God does not spare anyone from the coming flood, it's just the right thing to do. But God extended undeserved favor to Noah. And through that, he was saved. So in God's way to set things right, he also brings in his grace to offer an undeserved person salvation in the midst of judgment. You know, brothers and sisters, it is through God's grace to Noah that we see a glimpse of our own salvation. We see here the only way to be saved from God's righteous judgment is for God to show his favor to us. That's the only way. We cannot manipulate it. We cannot work hard for it. We cannot earn it. God must make the move. God must show his favor to anyone he chooses. The good news is God has made that move. God has made that move. And his move was to take the form of human flesh. Literal, actual anthropomorphism. He, take, he took the form of human. We see this in Philippians 2, verse 6. Paul talks about Jesus Christ, who is in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. When he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's what we see. The cross is where total depravity and total judgment of God comes together. At the cross, Jesus becomes the sum of humanity's total depravity. All of sin was laid on him. 
We sang this earlier. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Not only the total human depravity was laid on him, God's total divine judgment was placed on him as well. At the cross, he is recipient of God's righteous judgment. And because of that, we have been recipient of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Friends, you have found favor in God because of Jesus Christ, because he was crucified on the cross to take all our sin, to receive all the judgment on our behalf. You know what that means? The grace that we have is not cheap. The grace that we have is not cheap. And as we reflect on this, as we reflect on the grace of God, we, we need to see the deep, the seriousness of our total depravity and God's judgment that required it so that we will cherish the grace that we have today. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you that even as we wrestle in this difficult passage, we have the help of the Holy Spirit to, to draw us into your grace. Lord, as we continue to wrestle with issues that we see in the scripture, may we find comfort in the God that we worship, the God that deeply cares and is involved with his creation, the God who is the only one who can set things right, the God who has given us his favor in Jesus Christ. May we cherish, may we treasure this grace that we have received. May we see ourselves as recipients of God's favor, not because we have done good things, but because Christ has done the ultimate good on our behalf. May this bring us to humility and gratitude. In Christ's name, amen.